The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm so thrilled to be here this morning and so thrilled to be talking about the topic that we're going to be talking about, recognizing good ABA, because this is a hot, hot topic for a very good reason. Uh, we're going to get into all that. Before we get started, though, I want to remind everybody that we're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other sites that you can be checking us out there right now. Also uh, want to let you know that this show podcasts, we are a podcast, so as soon as the show is over, it will be available, I, I think it's a little bit later on today, it's available wherever you get your podcasts, it's a free download. We appreciate when you download, we appreciate when you share, we appreciate when you like, we appreciate when you review, because we are an entity on our own. Uh, now we are all out on our own and, and we have to keep the lights on and all of those things help us to keep the lights on. We want to be free to the people who need us. And our audience, we always say our mission is to provide information and inspiration to that larger autism community that starts with individuals who are on the autism spectrum themselves. We, of course, honor their voices here on the Autism Network. We'll talk about more about that in a second. But we also include in that discussion everyone who loves and supports those individuals because that only makes sense. If we truly are allies for people who are on the autism spectrum, then we want to help elevate the conversation of the people who are trying to be the allies and support them. So uh, on Mondays, we do this parent-to-parent -parent discussion. I am a parent. I, am a, I, I identify as a pony. <laughs> a proud pony, a parent of a neurodiverse. Oh, look at there. Make sure you subscribe. Thank you, Trayvon. Um, I, so a pony is a parent of a neurodiverse individual. I understand that role is different. My viewpoint is different than those who are on the autism spectrum. But it is a, a viewpoint that, you know, and I, I want to help and support other people who are parents of neurodiverse individuals because in that way we will support neurodiverse individuals, yeah? Um, but it is not the same, and we never want to make it sound like that my voice is the same or equal or, you know, that I can speak for individuals on the spectrum. Oh, no, contraire. Um, we do lots of programming on this show that uh, invites um, individuals who are neurodiverse but also uh, gives them an opportunity to use their voices to tell their story in whatever way that they want. If you've not seen our show, Stories from the Spectrum, you really need to check that out. It is only the voices of those who are on the spectrum. So uh, with nothing to, to muddle that at all. And then, of course, we also have guests that are on Autism Live and, and our other programs um, that are all across the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and in this way, we hope to support the rights and the lives of individuals who are on the autism spectrum, which is really what we're going to be talking about today. Now, uh, I know that this is a very controversial subject and that there are a lot of you out there who just have had a bad experience with ABA. We're not negating that at all. Uh, I, I just want to be clear. If you've had a bad experience with ABA, I am not 
going to tell you that, no, 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 you, you've had a good experience because your experience is your experience, right? But just like if somebody came to me and said, I had a bad experience in third grade, I would not assume that all third grade teachers were terrible. And I would not assume that third grade should be stopped. Um, I would assume that we need to get better training for all teachers, but I especially, if I was hearing over and over and over again that people in third grade were having a problem, I would start asking what is the problem. And I would want to identify what the problem was and fix what the problem is, but I wouldn't throw away third grade entirely. But I would never say to somebody, you didn't have that experience in third grade. Of course you did. Of course you did. And we in no way want to diminish that. And there have been people who have had very bad experience with, experiences with ABA. And yet I continue talking about how powerful ABA is and how good it can be. And a lot of times I think people go, what, we're, you know, you're not an ally to us. So I want to be clear once and for all, for all of us, for various and sundry reasons, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about good ABA. I see Parker has already, uh, yes, Parker, Parker has said, will bad ABA be discussed as well? I've heard stories about ABA providers treating their clients like dogs. Yes, I, absolutely. I mean, because as we talk about what good ABA is, we'll have an opportunity to reflect on what it isn't. Um, and the fact that, you know, people are doing all kinds of things out there as, oh, we tried so hard to get good funding for families so that they could get ABA, right? Um, and I think the short-sightedness of our generation, my generation, is that we didn't realize how many people, once there was funding, we didn't realize how many people were just going to take advantage of that and how they were going to cut corners and they weren't going to train people and they weren't when they did train people, they weren't going to talk about what's the most important thing, which is the dignity of the individual. I mean, sometimes it is so shocking to me that we have to say that. Like, how can people not know that? But I know it's very easy to get confused sometimes when you're trying to do something and you're following steps and to forget what you're actually doing. So that's one of the reasons why we want to talk about this. And I think that parents are lost. I know that when, when, when my son was diagnosed with autism and everybody said, oh, you got to do ABA, all I had heard was the bad stories. So I said, nope, 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 we are not going to do that. There's no way, no how. I'm a good parent. We're not going to do that. And then I saw a couple of good stories and I was like, wait a second, I don't, now I'm upside down. I don't know. And eventually when we did ABA, I was like, I don't get it. I don't know why people said so many negative things about this. You know, and... Then I saw some bad ABA and I went, oh yeah, I could see where that would turn somebody off. But if you don't know, then how do you know what to tell the difference? And I was talking to a parent the other day who was saying, yeah, help me to know what's good because anybody starting ABA needs to know these things. Um, yes, Parker says a lot of self-advocate organizations tell people no ABA. Uh, ASON is a huge example of that. Absolutely. And I understand why they're saying it. I really do. And when I tell parents now to go get ABA for their child, I say to them, and just know, you're going to have to be a watchdog to make sure that it's good ABA. But then they will always say to me, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? I don't, if I don't know what it is I'm looking for, how would I even know? So I'm going to, we're going to give you the top 10 uh, tips for recognizing good ABA. And there's a surprise. It's really 11. I have 11. I'm going to go through them really quickly so that we get it all out there, and then I'm going to go back and explain each one, okay? So here we go. Top 10 
parent to parent, let's remember this is parent to parent. I am not a doctor. I'm a parent who has seen good ABA. I have a parent who has seen the results of good ABA. I am now a parent who has seen bad ABA, and I have definitely seen the results of bad ABA. So these are my parent to parent tips for recognizing good ABA, and we're gonna power through these really quickly, and then I'll go back and explain. Okay, number one, good ABA is specific to the needs of the individual. Of course, this is a duh, but apparently it isn't. Number two, good ABA teaches skills that benefit the individual that's being taught. Again, a duh, but yes. Number three, good ABA considers the individual's sensory needs. Can't be good ABA without that. Number four, good ABA follows the science, including the research on intensity. Wait till we talk about that. Number five, good ABA plans for generalization. I'll explain that in a minute, but it's important. Number six, oop, it didn't advance. Number, oh, I lost six, wait. There, six, ABA includes everyone who interacts with the individual. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, seven, good ABA is compassionate and trauma-informed. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about that. Number eight, good ABA encourages the individual to advocate for their own needs. It absolutely does. Number nine, good ABA never, ever, ever blames the learner. Number 10, good ABA takes place in settings that are meaningful to the individual. Oh, a lot of people are gonna get tripped up on that one. And number 11, because I had to put this in there, as Dr. Grampichet says, good ABA is fair. Fair to the individual, fair. Because if it's not fair, then what is it? Okay, those are the 11 tips. Now we're gonna go back and talk about each one of them individually. So you're not gonna wanna miss out on that, but now you know what it is that we're gonna be talking about. Okay, why is this important? Because we're talking about the dignity of individuals, of individuals who matter and whose worth matters to us. I, I mean, it matters to me as a parent. As a parent, why would I ever want my child's dignity to be taken away? Why would I ever want him to feel less than? Why would I ever want him to feel anything other than glorious and supported? And I'm here to tell you the good ABA does that. And anything that doesn't do that is not good ABA. If someone is being treated like they are less than or that they are a problem, it is not good ABA, right? Because, and, and the reason, you know, I put number 11 last, but let's talk about it first, that it has to be fair. Because as Dr., that's what Dr. Grampichet taught me and, and what I was constantly looking at. Because we're going to go through each one of these other 10 things, but the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes people go, well, that's a lot to remember. And if you want to keep it easy, just ask yourself, is it fair to the individual? So if I come to you as a person and I say, you know, i got a job for you to do. And the job is that I, you know, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm agreeing to pay you X, Y, and Z. In your mind, you go, like, is that fair? For my time and my effort, is it fair that I'm gonna get paid this? Maybe, or maybe you need to get paid more. But it also means that, that the contract is gonna be followed and that you're not gonna be treated like, like you are, um, I don't even know, like, because I, it's not even treating somebody like a dog, because sometimes dogs are treated really well, but if you're going to be mistreated and abused while you're doing the work, that's not going to be fair, right? And so I think for parents and for practitioners, 
as you're going through something that's ABA, if that is in your mind, okay, it has to be fair for the individual, I feel like you're going to get it right. We're going to go through those other 10 things to really nail down why it has to be fair and how you make it fair. But if it's not fair, then it's not, it's not good ABA. And, it's, and here's the other thing. It's not going to be productive ABA. The reason why ABA is considered the number one teaching technique is because it's effective, because it works. And it works in all kinds of settings with all kinds of people. They use ABA in businesses. They, they use it in world strategies. They use it with Olympic athletes. They use it with senior citizens and not just people on the spectrum. And why? Because it works when it's done correctly. When it isn't, it makes very unhappy, traumatized people. So it is important that we get it right. And, and I think the first litmus test is if you're asking yourself, is it fair for the individual? And if it is, then we move forward. If it isn't, you gotta stop and go, whoo, wait a second, this isn't good ABA. Good ABA says you're more likely to do something, even if it's hard, if it's rewarding for you. Now, if you're treating someone, as you said, Parker, like a dog, I feel like that's a misnomer because I, so, I know some dogs who are treated really well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but if you're being treated poorly, if you are being treated like you are less than, how is that making that equation of you're more likely to do something even if it's hard if you are re rewarded? It doesn't fit. By definition, it isn't going to be good ABA. But let's go back and talk about these things one by one, shall we? Because this is important to me. This is about as important as it gets. They're going to be closing the casket on me, and I'm going to be like, wait a second. I want to make sure everybody knows this. Okay, so number one, good ABA is specific to the needs of the individual. Look, what is rewarding to me is not rewarding to you. And what's rewarding, rewarding to me at 4 a.m. is not the same as what's re rewarding to me at 4 p.m. And what's rewarding to me at uh, the age of, I, I'm 60 now, is not what was rewarding to me when I was 42. So if what we're trying to do is make a circumstance in which the person um, feels comfortable trying something that's hard, and that's really what it's all about, that it's worth it to, to try, um, that it's worth it to make the effort, um, and it's worth it. Sometimes, you know, we don't want to do something because we're afraid of failing, right? Or we don't know how, right? But being willing to trust a teacher to say, I'm willing to try, it's got to be an incubator uh, that is specific to the person and says, I'm, I'm taking your individual needs into consideration. And that's across the board. That the program for what we're going to teach a four-year-old who happens to be maybe second generation, let's say that they're from Croatia, um, and their family has very specific cultural things that they do in their family that would need to be learned, um, and very cultural things that are off-putting. Um, but if we have a four-year-old who is second generation uh, now from Croatia, and maybe English is their third language, the program that we would develop for that child for what they specifically you know, need, and need to learn and how to learn will be vastly different than if we have a 14-year-old who you know, uh, English is their first language, Culturally, their family, uh, let's say that they're a, it's a big Italian family, 
and uh, you know, they're, they're, the way they eat is very different than the way the four-year-old's family from Croatia eats. These are going to be very, very, very different programs, just uh, you know, at face value, but then talk about the individual. I could have two little boys who are second generation from Croatia, but they're very different. So it's got to be individualized across everything, across culture, across preferences, personal preferences, across learning styles, across sensory needs. It's got to be individual because if we're saying that we want this individual to learn, right, and they've struggled to learn some things, then we need to make it specific to them. We've all gotten into, listen, I'm a former teacher, and we've gotten into this whole, I, I blame George W. Bush. Um, he had a great idea, no child left behind. I don't know what just happened. I just lost all picture. Okay, uh, George W. Bush said he had this great, great idea, right, that no child left behind. But in the working of it in education, and I was in classrooms when it happened, what happened is people who were not smart were left in charge and said, okay, we want to be able to turn a page and every single student will be on the same page on the same day. Well, that does not take individuals into consideration. It does not take their learning styles into consideration. It, it like leaves out the creativity in teaching. So um, ABA says that doesn't work. And we know that doesn't work. Our schools are failing because that doesn't work. We need to go back to being individualized when we are teaching individuals. Okay, so got to be individualized. This cookie cutter ABA crap about, oh, you bringing your three-year-old in? Here's the program we have for three-year-olds. If somebody is saying to that, that to you, I want you to run for the hills. I know it's hard because there's very little ABA that's available, but no cookie cutter crap. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says that. No cookie cutter crap. Look, there's a certain amount of stuff that we know that if a three-year-old comes in and they're not speaking, there's a certain amount of stuff that's very similar across three-year-olds if they're, if they're not speaking, right? But you cannot make the whole thing a cookie cutter because you're not taking the individual and their culture and their life and their learning style into consideration. And it has to be in order to be good ABA and be effective. So if they're saying, this is what we do for all the kids, that's a Big, ginormous red flag. Nuh-uh. That's not good ABA by definition. Okay, uh, number two, good ABA teaches uh, skills that benefit the individual. Okay, let's really get into this. Because a lot of times we get into the discussion about are we teaching this because it's socially relevant or are we teaching it because it's relevant to the individual? Now, sometimes it could be both. There are some things, and I know this is tough. This is where it gets really, really dicey, right? Because I can say to you that, you know, uh, making eye contact is uh, a social construct that's old and it's crap and it should be thrown out. And I believe that. I personally believe that, that this whole idea of if you're not making eye contact, then, you know, um, you got to. Um, however... However, the world has not caught up to that. And so you have to make a determination about, um, you know, are we going to put somebody into the world and we're, we're, you know, if eye contact is hard for them, we're not going to teach it. I think there's a big difference between teaching and forcing. I can teach you Spanish, but if I'm forcing you to speak Spanish, that's an entirely different way of looking at things. And I don't like that. 
But I, I love a friend of mine, her mom, there were, uh, they had five girls in their family. And the mom always said, listen, I taught my girls how to clean their houses so that if they want to clean their houses when they grow up, they know how to clean their houses. But whether you decide to clean your house or not is a personal choice. You don't have to do it. But I'm going to teach you the skill so that if you want to be able to do it, it's there for you if you want to be able to do it. Okay. I like that kind of thinking because I don't think that everybody needs to know everything. And I don't think that everybody needs to be able to do eye contact at will. But I will tell you that a lot of adults will say, I just can't get a job. I just can't get a job and I keep failing in the interviews. And we can all say, well, that's crap and we need to change it. But it hasn't changed yet. I think we're going to get there in another 20 years, but I said that 20 years ago and we're not there. And so there, there becomes this thing about eventually we see teens and adults saying, just freaking teach me how to do it on demand so that I can do it so that I can get the job. And I think that, that then it becomes important. So what do you do when you have a four-year-old? What do you do when you have a four-year-old? Well, I think that with a four-year-old, you need to make things as fun as possible. Um, you need to teach a wide variety of things that are actually important to the four-year-old. The four-year-old wants to be able to, you know, and it depends on the four-year-old. One four-year-old might be like, I want to ask for a cookie and get a cookie. So you teach that to them. Another four-year-old might want to play with a little boy in the sandbox at the park, and you teach that little boy how to make friends with the, the, you start with the things that are meaningful to them. Now, along the way, you can be reinforcing all kinds of behavior. And I love what they did with my son is that early on, the way that they taught him eye contact is that he had one therapist who would come and play pirates with him and he would pretend that he was like this, this pirate game that you could reset. And the only time, the only thing that would turn on the game is when my son's eye gaze, not focus like, you know, but eye gaze would cross his, that would turn the thing on. And so it was always pleasurable for my son when the eye gaze went by. Now, did that mean that immediately at three, my son was, you know, did perfect eye contact? No, of course not. Um, but I, I see now who he is at 20 and about to be 20. And he said to me the other day about having a conversation with one of his professors, I'm telling things out of school here, but um, he said, you know, and I wanted to get a point across. And he said, so I made sure I made really good eye contact, mom. Like, he has that skill. He knows how and when to deploy it when it benefits him. Not, I mean, I guess because sometimes that what society dictates, but it's his skill to use as he wants now. Um, that's what's important to me. What makes me crazy is when people are teaching kids things um, with no thought of, is this important to the individual and why? If you can't come up with why this would be important to them now or down the road, why are you teaching it? Um, it has to be important to them now or someplace down the road. And if it's something that's happening down the road, then you have to teach it in a way that's fair. They have to be getting huge reward for it and never demeaned for it. Never, ever, ever. And that means not forcing 
forcing doesn't work. Uh, Parker says, I had ABA in the early 2000s and it has changed a lot since then. And I agree with you, Parker, it has. And in some ways, in some places, it's worse, right? In some ways, in some places, it's better, but in some places, it's worse. Uh, Parker says, yes, but it could affect people in the wrong way. I still have a huge staring problems and it creeps people out. I will ask Dr. Doreen for a solution for that tomorrow. Yes. When we force people to make eye contact, what we get is that you know, people who are staring and don't blink and look, and then that is not socially what, what we want either because people go, oh, I don't know what to do. They're staring at me and I don't know what to do. And this is what comes of forcing eye contact. Um, so we don't want that. And I don't want this to just be about eye contact, but that's a very hot topic, right? Do we teach eye contact? Do we not teach eye contact? I like teaching eye contact as just one other thing in the program and giving people incentive to, you know, have their eye path cross, but not stare, right? Not forcing. Okay. Uh, moving on here, let's go on to number three. Good ABA considers the individual's sensory needs. And this, oh my gosh, it seems so simple to me that it never occurred to me that there were people who weren't taking this into consideration, but I think this is one of the biggest problems. I think this is one of the reasons why so many people are saying that they are traumatized uh, from doing ABA because well-intentioned behavior technicians aren't taught this. That the more that we see ABA working hand-in-hand hand with good OTs, I think the better it's going to get. And I think that um, there's, there's been a recent shift that ABA now in the, in the last few years, the DSM uh, has sensory as a component uh, for autism where it didn't before. So I think it's going to get better, but I think we have to fast track this. And as parents, I think you, you owe it to yourself and your child and the person who's working with your child to kind of beat it, this into the ground by telling them what you, what you are aware of uh, for your child's sensory needs. And let's remember that we're not aware of what all of them are, that this is where it gets a little hard because, um, for instance, again, I'll go back to the example of my son. He like the sound of styrofoam. I had no idea. I had no idea until he was like, I don't know, 14, and I was doing something with a carton of eggs, and he just went, I need you to stop. And, and I said, what, 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 what am I doing? And he said, that noise. And I said, I didn't even, I, I, my ear couldn't even hear it. And since then, we only buy eggs in a plastic container now. We never get them in the styrofoam or a paper, you know, the recycled paper um, containers. And I said to him, I said, how long has that been something that bothers you? And he's like, oh, I, it, it bothers me so much less than when it did when I was a kid. Then when he was a kid, if he heard that noise, it, like he had to tune completely out or, you know, completely lose his mind because it's, the noise is so on a nerve for him. And I didn't know. I didn't know. Now, does that make me a bad parent? I can't know everything, Right. But I, I would say to other parents, tune in, and when you see your kid having a hard time, you need to ask yourself what the sensory component is, and you got to be after your behavior technicians to do the same thing. That this is a very large part of the experience, so we are told by people who are on the spectrum, and it, we need to be mindful 
and be aware and look for signs and clues and and not push and force when when you know when we get a moment where the child isn't going to do what they're going to do we can't just force them into it and we can't always just reward them into it we we need to be thinking about what's what are the sensory components right now what's going on for them it is that perspective taking we need to do better perspective taking on this component. Good morning, Liliana. Hi, Susie B. So glad that you're here. Uh, Parker says it's like kids in fire alarms. It spooked me really bad as an elementary schooler, so bad that they had to tell me when a fire drill would happen. Absolutely. Absolutely, uh, Parker. The, there are these sensory components, and it's, you know, I always think back to Spinal Tap when, when, he, when he's like, we want to turn up the amp and we want to turn it to 11 not just 10, we want to go beyond that and go to 11. And I think about our kids and think that some of the, like the egg carton, which was on a one, maybe for me, was on a 12 for my son. And there's no way I would have known that, right? But I could have been looking for the clues. I wish somebody had clued me into that whole, I wasn't aware of all the sensory things when we first started out because nobody was talking about that. So we need to be talking about that and good ABA needs to take this into consideration. Or if we push past something when, at Parker, the perfect example about for the fire alarm things, if somebody just was like, oh no, we're going to flood you with fire alarms and you're going to you know, get used to it, that would be traumatizing. We don't want that at all. That's not good learning. If we're trying to help somebody to learn, traumatizing them is never fair. I go back to the fair. Okay, number four, good ABA follows the science, including the research on intensity. Oh, I am not the most popular person in the world of ABA. I, I always, like, I was like, I'm your biggest fan and I love ABA providers. And now I am sort of persona non grata because of this. Because uh, I love when ABA people say, oh, well, we follow the science. We absolutely, we're the science of learning. Fantastic, because I love evidence-based treatment. I love something that actually works and isn't let's, you know, dance around the fire and wave sage. Um, you know what I mean? I like to know that what you're doing with my child is based on scientific fact that this is the best teaching tool that there is. But a lot of ABA professionals in the last couple of years have decided to look the other way on intensity. And all I want to say is, shame on them. And we cannot allow that to happen. Insurance companies, I feel like, drive this conversation in a very passive-aggressive way, right? Um, because what they're doing, and it's, you know, it's the, a bigger discussion, but insurance companies know that intensity is the thing. But what they're doing is saying to the providers, oh, we just can't, we're not going to pay you as much. And then the provider can't hire as many people because nobody wants to work for that wage. It's not a living wage. And now they don't have enough therapy to give you. And so they say to you, well, you know, 20 hours will be enough for this four-year-old who cannot speak. And they know that that is not following the science. They know that it is not following the science, but they're like, what can we do? Because the insurance won't pay enough for us to hire people to staff that. I just need parents to know this is not good ABA. This is not good ABA. If, if somebody is saying that a, for, a, and I know they're going to say, well, different four-year-olds, and da, 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 da. but a four-year-old who is not speaking evidence, if we're going to look at the research, the research says that 40 hours a week is what works. And by the way, it says that for the four-year-old who does speak as well. 
that 40 hours gets that child further than 20 hours. And look, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out why that would be. If I go to the gym and I go a half an hour three times a week, I'm not going to get ripped. Can we all acknowledge and accept that? But if I go four hours a day, my body's going to change because I put that much more effort in and I'm building on what I did yesterday for four hours and I get that much further along. If I'm going to play the violin and I practice for a half an hour a week, I'm never going to be a concerto violinist, right? But if I practice three hours a day and I do that for five years, I might get there, right? I'm going to be a good violin player. There's a whole bunch of research on that. 5,000 hours doing any activity and you can be an expert in it. Do you want your kid to be an expert in speaking and communicating their needs? Then they need more ABA. And all of the research shows that clearly. And yet, ask anybody who gets their child diagnosed and taken in to get ABA, and probably your insurance approved 40 hours, but the ABA provider will say to you 10, 16, 20, it's crap. That's the technical term for it, it's crap. Intensity is a part of the equation. Now, it is based on individuals. It absolutely is based on individuals, and this is how they're getting away with it. Well, your child, your child as an individual, I'm looking at them, they don't need as much. And we as parents hear that and we go, oh, thank God, my child isn't as needy as other kids. This is good. And besides which, I don't know how we would do 40 hours, right? 20 hours is going to be a, a stretch for us. But what they've done in selling, they sold you a bill of goods. I hate it when people say, well, this child has mad skills, so they don't need as much. Listen, go back and look at the DSM-5. It says there's a rating scale, one, two, three, in two different categories. Three is needs tremendous support. Two is needs, uh, needs a modicum of support. And one is needs support. The very definition of it, it needs support. And this, there is no, I'm not aware of a single study showing that 20 hours of ABA for a child under the age of five is effective at getting the best result. So why are they offering 20? They're offering 20 because they can't staff 40. It's not good ABA. I'm saying revolt against it. I just, a whole lot of people <laughs> won't like me now. That's the truth. That is the truth. Um, if somebody says to you, what we'd like to be doing is getting your child 40 hours, but we can only staff 20 hours, I would go with that company because they're telling you the truth. And then I would say to them, I'm going to help you to figure out how we're going to staff more than 20 hours. That's, that's what I would do. That's good ABA. But people who say to you, 20 is enough for your child who's four and not speaking, they're lying to you. That, I wouldn't trust them. Uh, good ABA plans for generalization. This was one of the first things that I realized and went, oh, this is a big deal about whether ABA is good or not. Let's just talk about the potty training conundrum, right? That uh, let's say that the ABA company says, we're going to potty train your child. Great. They potty train your child. And then I hear from so many people, well, now my child can only pee in the potty at home and they only will poop at home. Like we went on vacation for 10 days and our child didn't poop the whole 10 days. What's wrong? And my thing is your ABA company didn't plan for generalization. So generalization is the idea that I'm going to teach you a skill and I'm going to teach it to you like in a very safe space where it's easy to understand and easy to get. And then I'm going to foster that skill. 
But my whole time, I, from the minute I started teaching, I planned on how I was going to take this into the world with you and eventually how I was going to go hands up and you were going to be able to do it not only in this circumstance, but in all the circumstances that there are in the world. Because if you think about it, everything that you teach has so many different elements to it. Let's just talk about the color red. When you understand the color red, it's huge, right? It isn't just like one color red on one piece of paper. You need to understand that red can be 2D or 3D. It can be a brick red and orange red. It can be a hubba hubba ding ding fire engine red, right? So I need to, when I'm going to teach the color red, I need to plan on teaching it in so many flexible ways that eventually a child can look at any red in their world and know that it's red. I always talk about my mom when she was teaching me how to drive. She was teaching me how to drive first in her little Vega car, right? That's how old it was. But she also wanted me to be able to drive any car. If I rented a car, that I would be able to drive it. And listen, I rented a car recently and I got in and I was like, I don't even see where the start button is, right? But I knew what to look for because I had generalized the ability to drive a car that there are some things that are the same, they're just in different places. And now I can drive not only any car, but I can drive anywhere in the world because I understand the rules of the road. And I may not have driven on this bridge or that road before, but I have enough understanding of how to drive on a bridge, on a road, to understand how to do it, even if I have to drive on the other side of the road in a country in Europe. That's generalization. So when, um, you know, I, I can remember when they were teaching my son salutations and the, that, you know, somebody would say to him, um, you know, hi, and then, you know, he would need to respond back. They didn't teach him just one thing. They taught him a bunch of things. And not only that, they taught him no matter how someone says hello, that someone can wave and then you wave back or someone... Uh, I remember that, you know, they, in the beginning, they taught him that they would say hello and they would say it different every time so that he wouldn't just think, oh, you have to say hello and then I say this. That's not what we're teaching. We're teaching you how to greet other people and how to accept that greeting and respond to it. So you teach lots of different ways and they have to have a plan for it. But I remember in the beginning, he didn't have that. He just had it with the people around him. And they said to us, you have to take him out places. And, you know, you have to go to Target and encourage the cashier to talk to him. And I remember the one cashier, she was like, well, hello, little honey pie. What's your name? And my son was like, you know, he'd never heard that accent before, right? So we knew that, you know, we got to take him out. It has to go out into the world. And we have to teach them not just the rote thing, but how to learn. That's generalization. So that eventually they get it. And they can apply what they know to new situations that were never actually taught. That is generalization. And a lot of ABA providers will say, oh, well, we'll do that when we get there. No, no, no. You have to plan for how you're going to teach generalization from the very first time. Otherwise, you end up with kids who don't know how to poop in a potty that isn't at home because you didn't plan for it. If you plan from the beginning and you say, okay, we're going to teach potty training in the downstairs toilet, and the minute he's got it in the downstairs toilet, we're going to go up and do it in the upstairs toilet. And then we're going to go to Target, and we're, we're going to Target a lot today. And then we're going to go to the grocery store and go to their bathroom. Then we're going to go to Aunt Betty's house, and we're going to go in their toilet. 
And then we're going to go in the school bathroom because they're all different, but they have things in common. And what the child quickly learns is these are all bathrooms. And the bathrooms, like, you know, some you push the button, some you have to push down, some you do the handle, but they all flush, right? And some of them flush on their own, some of them don't, uh, right? So we're giving them like a little taste of a bunch of different things so that eventually they can go to the bathroom in any bathroom in the world, even when they have to go in an outhouse, right? I hate it when we would go someplace where there was a porta potty and my son was like, what? Uh, but you know, now, uh, like I have more problem in that than he does. Uh, Liliana says, lately I've been having more and more parents calling my center regarding that their ABA provider is not working out for their child. Also that their ABA provider is dropping their child due to staff. Oh yes, Liliana, we've been hearing that too. That a parent, uh, because if you think about this, this is so insidious that um, they don't have enough staff to staff everybody's. And so what we're seeing is that parents who maybe are challenging them or saying, you know, you're not giving me enough hours, that they're dropping them because they're, they're going with the people who are giving them no problems and the kids are losing out. Here's the thing though, insurance has, the scale has to get tipped. You're paying insurance, right? You have a right to your insurance, even if it's insurance that you're getting through Medicaid, Medi-Cal. Um, you have a right to it. And when they don't have a provider for you, you have the right to say that, you know, they, it's uh, denial of access to care. That's the phrase, denial of access to care. And they have to, they have to make, you know, you can go find a provider that has staff and you go back to your insurance and say, I need a single case agreement out of network where you get in-network pricing for it because your provider can't provide. If enough parents did that, it would cost the insurance company so much that they would raise the rate on these behavior technicians and there would be more therapy. And, and I wish that it wasn't on the parents. I, I really do. I, I wish that somebody else had stopped this before it got to this. But I'm telling you, and I believe this, uh, parents have led the way on all of this. And parents are the only one who can say this now. So I, I encourage people to take care of your kid. Don't worry about everybody else, but don't let them give you the runaround. If you're not getting enough hours, go back to your insurance company and say, my, my company doesn't have enough hours to staff. That's a denial of access to care. And push, 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 push. Um, <laughs> uh, Parker said, it sounds kind of like me, but I don't talk that Southern. That's interesting. Uh, that's fun, Parker. I never pictured you with a slight Southern accent, so that's fun. Um, but Liliana, that breaks my heart, breaks my heart. Uh, Liliana says, I've, I always advise parents to do their research first when choosing an ABA provider. Read reviews, gather information from other parents, ask questions. I agree. It's just that, my problem is that some parents are like, oh, we love our AB provider. They're just, they're fantastic. They're wonderful. And I go, oh, I'm so glad. Tell me about like, uh, you know, and I'll ask a bunch of questions like, what's your child working on? How many hours a week do you have? Like, it isn't even always my first question, but then they'll go, oh, you know, my, my three-year-old nonverbal child, we've got eight hours of ABA a week. It's a lot, I know. And I go, oh gosh. And this person is leaving good reviews for this company all over the place, I, you know, and I just go, ugh. Oh, and the parent doesn't know. 
The parent doesn't know that they've been lied to and that these people are cheating their child. It's just terrible. Um, okay, but good ABA plans for generalization. Let's not forget that. Okay, number six, and this feeds right into what I was about to talk about. Good ABA includes everyone who interacts with the individual. Okay, so if, if good ABA works and if this idea that if we're going to ask an individual to do things, because we get into these behavior ruts, right? Um, and it isn't because we're not smart, it's just because maybe we've gotten used to it or maybe we don't know another way, right? That's all of us, not just kids on the spectrum, not just adults on the spectrum, all of us. And when we want to change a, a, a behavior to something that's more efficient, that's better for us, um, then we have to be willing to abandon old behavior. And it does mean that you know, it has to be pretty comprehensive. This is part of, partly why we want to do the intensity, right? So we get more of a chance, more of an opportunity to do it and get reinforced for it. But what happens if, um, you know, let's say that we, we drop our child off at a center and they're there for four hours. And it's great. And they're learning all kinds of things and they're doing great ABA there and that's wonderful. And then we pick the child up and we take them to grandma's house because we have to work, right? So we take them to grandma's house and then they're at grandma's house and grandma has different rules. Grandma says, I think you, you get to be a little kid and, and being a little kid to grandma means that you get to sit and watch PBS all afternoon. And I'm not going to put any demands on you and you can do whatever you want. And then mom comes to pick up, you know, the kiddo from grandma's house and says it's time to turn off the TV and the kiddo throws a tantrum and grandma says, you know, let him watch more TV and gives him a lollipop and whatever. What do you think is going to win out? Uh, <laughs> I think having it my way and getting a lollipop for it is going to win out because that's my old pattern. If we do ABA and we're doing it really effectively, the research says, by the way, that it's not just 40 hours a week for those young kids that was found to be effective. It was every waking hour. In those original studies that where they did the 40 hours of ABA with the, the kids who were between the ages of three and five, they also taught the parents what to do and how to uphold what they were doing eight hours a day at the center. And if the parents weren't the custodial people, they taught the babysitter or the nanny or the grandparent. And eventually, you know, when they went to school, they were teaching school, here's what works and is effective with this kiddo. If we're still in the intervention, it gets to a point where the kiddo doesn't need the intervention anymore. If you, you know, if all things being equal and if there's nothing else going on, more than 50% of those kids got to that point. So my, my thing is, you know, we, we're, and we're going to talk about setting in a moment, but if you are... A lot of ABA providers, especially in the pandemic, has du have doubled down on this. I actually think this is better than it's ever been before, that a lot of them are providing parent training or caregiver collaboration or whatever you want to call it, where they're trying to teach the parents how to do this good ABA. Um, I think it's cri critical, absolutely critical, that the whole family, everybody who interacts with the child has to understand what's going on and how to reinforce this child. And we see what happens very clearly when we don't do this. Um, you know, this, this is what, like when the kid goes to school and, and, you know, so they're having good ABA at home, they have an IEP in, in place at school, but 
you know, the, the behavioral aide gets to take lunch the same time the kid takes lunch, and now all of a sudden the lady in the lunch line has a problem and the police are called and the child is handcuffed to the lunch line. I'm not making this up. This happens. Because one person didn't understand what we're doing. It's very critical that in this intervention we're making every waking hour this very educationally enriched environment in which they have the opportunity to communicate in the way that they need to communicate while they're learning to communicate their needs and that we reinforce and that we're not punishing. And if we have people entering the equation, they can gum this up and traumatize the child. So good ABA should be, if you are just dropping your child off at the center and there is no time when they're coming in and saying to you, what's your hardest moment with your kiddo? Let's talk you through it. You don't have good ABA because they need to be working with you on what's happening at home. Otherwise, you're never going to make all the progress that you would like to, and it's going to get difficult. Uh, Liliana, thank you. She says, Shannon, this is important information. Like you say, not all ABA providers are created equal. They're not. There's some great ones out there. I want you all to run and get that. Parker says, when I had ABA, everyone was involved, from my babysitters to my pastor to everyone in between. Amen, Parker. That's the way to get this done. Everybody's got to be on board, right? But I feel like a lot of ABA providers got this sharply. You know why? Because they didn't have enough staff and they, they want to make money and they get paid for the parent training, but I'll take it. I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. I think they have realized now, ooh, when we get the parents on board, we make more progress. Um, and so it's good. It's good. I, I don't mind that it's money-driven. It's good. Um, number seven. This is the hill that we're all needing to stand on and die if necessary, but I hope not. A good ABA is compassionate and trauma-informed. You're going to hear this phrase a lot now because ABA providers are starting to distinguish themselves by saying this, that we do trauma-informed. All kids are not created equal. And what they have been through and how they arrive at therapy, it's not all equal and even. And we can't just have this cookie cutter where we assume because some kids have already been through trauma. And we may not know. You know, it's not like these kids have the ability to communicate. Not, you know, no four-year-old has the ability to tell you how they've been traumatized. It's why therapists have to take them into a room and give them dolls and let it come out through play because no four-year-old has the words. But certainly our kiddos on the spectrum don't have the words to say. And I'm not just talking it's about sexual abuse. This could be that a dog has scared them or that a fire alarm has scared them, right? Um, this goes beyond the sensory. This goes into, you know, what you have been through. Like, think about you and what you have been through and what ways that you are, are traumatized, right? Uh, and the things that you've been through in your life that when you get to them, it kind of brings you up short and go, oof, I, I remember feeling like this, right? Um, we have to be working with people who are willing to see these individuals as individuals, and to be compassionate. This goes right to the heart of, is it fair that if a child is freaking out, uh, I go back to, you know, one of the series that we used to show here on the show it was called uh, The A Word. And it followed a little boy who uh, was having some feeding issues. And he literally would be traumatized whenever he saw a fruit, like an orange or a banana, he would scream, and, and I don't know why. 
and I don't know specifically, like he could have seen a cartoon where somebody got splatted with a banana or fell on a banana and his brain looked at that and went, that's a scary thing. I don't, I don't know. And it's not important for me to know or to quantify it, but it's important for me to know as a therapist that this is traumatizing to this child. Now, it is not fair or um, good to just leave someone in their trauma. We don't go, okay, well, you know, he's traumatized by a, na- by a nana, so we are going to outlaw bananas. There will never be a banana in this house. We will n- only go to grocery stores that don't have bananas. He will never go to a party or a house where there's no bananas. That would be cruel to that individual. But it's equally cruel and unfair and traumatizing to go, I'm going to shove a banana in your face and you're going to get over it. That's not effective either. And it's mean and it's traumatizing. But sometimes we step on, on the third rail and we don't even know, right? Because like, oh, I didn't know that he was traumatized by bananas, right? But it's important for the team. And I love, we, we used to show video of showing how they worked on eventually getting this little boy to eat a banana and be happy and not be afraid of bananas anymore. Because bananas are not something to be afraid of, does not negate the fact that he was traumatized by them. But we don't, you know, I think there are some people who are like, why are you even, like, don't, you know, do that to him. Uh, You know, I I can say for my son, we used to, uh, we're going to talk about this in a second too, we used to go out on these community outings and we would go, the Pasadena Symphony would do this thing so good when he was little that we would go and uh, they would have a musical petting zoo and you could play all the instruments and see which one you liked. And then they would have some sort of an arts thing at the end where everybody went upstairs and it would be like interpretive dance or storytelling or something. And it was culturally robust and it was just so awesome. And we would go uh, once a month on these Saturday mornings. I don't know if they do it anymore. But then um, there was one time when they had a circus, like a a little, uh, it was just people circus. It was kind of like mini Cirque du Soleil and they were teaching them tumbling and all this other stuff. And they gave away balloons as we left. And I was like, oh no, a balloon. And my husband was like, oh, a balloon. Oh no, 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 no. And we were with uh, one of our behavior uh, technicians and he was like, why are you both acting like it's trauma inducing? And I was like, oh, because it is. And so we got the balloon and we tied it around my son's hand and we like were walking out to the car and the therapist is like, what is going on here? And I said, if, that, if he lets go of that balloon and it goes and flies away, we will lose two days because it, that is trauma to him. And the, and the therapist was like, oh, we're going to work on that. And I was like, no, we're not. No, we are not going to work on that. We're not going to like, and he was like, he can't go through life like that. And I was like, yes, he can. Yes, he absolutely can. But I, over time, I saw that we were going to work on it in ways that were really like showing pictures of balloons, uh, you know, that, that blow away and, and not like dipping him in, in the deep end of it, right? You can't do that. But it's not kind to leave someone with feelings of trauma because it's very paralyzing. Uh, where did I leave off here? Uh, oh, jo- uh, Joanny. Oh, how are things there, man? I was reading just a little bit this morning. I hope everybody's okay. Uh, she says, learn ABA so you know what it is and you can identify good from bad. Boy, isn't that the truth? And Parker says, I knew someone that vomited over the side of food due to the package being wrong. Yeah, and we can't, there's no judging that, right? Like I know a lot of people will be like, oh, come on, you're, you're vomiting over the, yes. No, for whatever reason, like you just have to accept that that's what it is. 
but let's not leave the person stuck in that forever. But it has to be fair. It has to be compassionate. It has to be trauma-informed. We're not wanting to make the trauma worse. That's got to be at the core of everything. Uh, okay, number eight, here's a big one. ABA encourages the individual to advocate for their needs. Frequently, people will say, this breaks my heart more than you can possibly know. People will say that ABA grooms children so that they are victims because it teaches them to only do what you're told and that they are prime for bad people to come along. And I believe that that can be true. I, I never want to negate, and when people have said to me, it, it, it groomed me and I was abused as a result of that, I, you want to talk about, that makes me want to throw up, right? Because I can definitely see where there would be room for that to happen. But good ABA teaches the child how to say no to adults. It literally teaches children how to say no I, and no, I don't want to do that in whatever way that they are capable of communicating. Um, and it can be as simple as no, I don't want to play that game, um, uh, right? It isn't just about no, you don't get to touch me. It, you know, it teaches them to say no and to advocate for what they need and what their own boundaries are and how to have their boundaries. I was not taught this as a child. So this is particularly poignant for me, can I say? And uh, as an adult, when they were teaching my child to have boundaries, whoo, I was like, why didn't no one teach me this? And it was very edifying to me as an adult. I'm still working on having boundaries because I wasn't taught that. But I can tell you that ABA done well and mindfully, and for all parents, you should be asking for this, teach my child how to say no. Teach my child what their rights are. Teach my child how to advocate for themselves. Teach them how to ask for help. Teach them, it teaches them stranger danger in a way that doesn't make them afraid of all strangers. It makes them captain of their own destiny. That's what good ABA does. Very, very important. Um, uh, Liliana says, Shannon, where can I start to get counseling therapy treatment for a nonverbal Down syndrome 11-year-old child? Any suggestions? Um, wow. Um, it depends on where you are, Liliana, and I don't remember where you are. Can you email me and let's have a conversation about this and see if I can't help you find somebody? Um, but, um, but I would need to know where you are. So email me, Shannon, at autism-live.com, and let's try to figure that out. Parker says, there are some religious people that don't believe in boundaries and that you were supposed to obey no matter what. And Parker, I, I think that that's a little bit, um, I think if you were to ask, go back and ask those religious people, um, is that true in all circumstances or in what circumstances do they say that? I know a lot of people have these things about, well, you obey your elders. I find that dangerous. Um, because then, you know, uh, or you, you know, you have to respect adults. I, I, I find that dangerous personally, but ask your pastor, if you have concerns about this, about where the boundary ends, like if they, if, a you know, if they say, well, you should respect your elders no matter what, obviously if the elder said, pick up that gun and shoot someone, I think your pastor is going to say, well, no, cause you know, the difference between right and wrong. You won't do what someone asks you to do if it's wrong. 
And there we have it. So then we need to make sure that you have a boundary for things that are wrong, right? I would go back and ask them. Um, see, you learn stranger danger. And so I think that that's important. Um, and Liliana Traven, thank you so much. He put my email in there, shannon at autism-live.com. But it is critical. We do know that individuals on the autism spectrum are because of um, the the inability at some point to always communicate. We know that children across the board are more vulnerable, right? Because are they going to be believed and can they communicate what happened or, or are they uh, duped uh, by bad people? I don't know what else to call them. They're bad people. Um, you know, that they are more vulnerable. And we know that, so children, all children are more vulnerable, vulnerable. And if our children are special needs, we know that they are three times more vulnerable than just typically developing children. So this for me is critical, that we make sure that good ABA, it's one of the like main reasons why I wanted to get started with ABA was that I thought he's, he needs to be able to communicate. He needs to be able to have boundaries, to tell people no. Um, super important, super important. And ABA is great at this, absolutely great at it. And if you don't do this, I think you are setting the child up uh, to be, there's too many bad actors out there. Uh, number nine, good ABA never blames the learner. I love this. I love that ABA says if we're teaching someone and they're not learning, it is never their fault. And so if anyone is ever blaming your child or their behavior for not learning, they don't deserve to be on your team. And that is awesome, right? It, what Instead, what I would like for you to see is that if somebody says, well, we tried teaching it this way, it's not working, so now we're going to start teaching it this way. Now we're not talking about blame or fault, we're talking about teaching and that Everybody learns in a different way and at a different rate and with different reinforcers. And if it's not working, we're not just going to keep forcing it, right? But we're going to try it a different way. We're going to use a different method. ABA is like a set of paintbrushes, and we're going to paint a painting together that's going to teach somebody something. And if this paintbrush isn't working, it is not the fault of the student. We're going to get another paintbrush out. We're going to try it a different way. This gave me so much peace for my child. Never, never, ever should your child be blamed for not learning something, ever. Number 10, good ABA takes place in settings that are meaningful to the individual. And I worded this very carefully because I, you know, look, there, when I got ABA, ABA, there were no centers for autism. It was all in the home. But I, what I loved about that was that there were things that we learned how to do in our home that were meaningful to our child. And then we went out into the community and did things and we went to other people's homes and we took the ABA therapist with us. Now, then ABA centers started and some very important research was done that was shown that kids learn faster in the center than they do at home. Now, the research didn't look at why, but I could suppose with you a bunch of different things. I think that probably the, the behavior technicians were learning more because they were watching other behavior technicians working. I think that the kids had the opportunity to do things in the moment with other kids, which was great. 
I think that the supervisors who know more than the behavior technicians were there and seeing something and could change a program faster instead of waiting two weeks to change something. I think that um, there weren't all the distractions of the things at home to break the pattern of the, this is how we do it at home to do it at the center. But all of that is my supposition. I only know that kids learned in the center faster than they did at home across the board and much faster. So then all of a sudden everybody was like, well, we got to get everybody in the center. Great. Everybody goes into the center, but somewhere along the line, people started getting very black and white and going, we don't do any therapy in the home. Well, now, where did the individuality go? <laughs> where Out the window. Maybe this kid has a problem with something at home and we need to work on it at home. And what happened to going out in the community? All of a sudden, everybody's like, well, it's so much easier if we do it at the center. Well, that's great. But the whole point is that the child has the world, not that they're able to do it in the center. So I think it's important that, you know, as a parent, you should be rallying around what is best for your individual child, and that includes the setting. Maybe some of the sessions need to happen at home because you're working on stuff at home. Maybe some of the sessions need to happen in the center because we're getting that good learning that's without the distractions of the dog and the doorbell and the TV and grandpa downstairs, right? All of that stuff, and it's happening there at the center. But then you need to be pushing these ABA providers to do community outings. The insurance will cover it. There's a code for it. Make them, I, you know, what I did was I scheduled one session every week and said, that's going to be our community outing, and I will tell your therapist where to meet us. I really encourage people to push for those community outings. That's where my son learned to generalize and where we got a long way. Uh, Joanne says, I remember the lesson of being able to say no, LOL. I was talking to my then seven-year-old and he needed to get dressed to run errands. I told him to get dressed and he said no. I told him you can't say no to mommy and he said I can say no to mommy. I am in charge of me. Okay, you're right. You can say no to mommy, but right now you have to be dressed to go outside. So now get dressed, please. Okay, and skipped upstairs. LOL. You know, um, that's a powerful moment, right? Because they do need to be able, able to even say no to mommy. Because sometimes they have a reason to say no to mommy. And I, don't, I think in that moment, it was just about, I'm going to teach you, mom. And that's great. Sometimes we need to be the learner. But what we've learned is that sometimes those kids are saying no for a reason. Because they have a bladder infection and they don't know how to tell you that. So they don't want to put clothes on because it's going to feel uncomfortable. Or, um, you know, they're running a temperature and they don't know how to tell you that. So, and there are other things besides being sick, right? They're little people. They have rights. And they have things going on inside that we don't know. Um, all the way, head and body included, that they have going on. So amazing. Thank you for that example, Joanny. And then number 11, I, bringing it all back, uh, talking about my favorite quote, and I've, and I've kind of changed the, the quote a little bit because what Dr. Grampichet actually says is it has to be fair. Uh, she's always talking about whenever you are spending time with someone and trying to teach them something, it has to be fair. And, and she doesn't quantify it and say, well, that's what good ABA is. She's like, no, it always has to be fair, but that is good ABA when it's fair. And I'm so sad 
that there are people who are doing ABA that that is not their watchword. Is this fair, what I'm doing? And I go to conferences. I'm getting ready to go to a conference here in a couple of weeks uh, where there's a lot of ABA providers. And let me just tell you, they're in a quandary right now because they're second-guessing themselves and they're asking, boy, is what I'm doing, is it trauma-inducing? Am I doing it right? Like, how can I be doing it better? These are good people. And they want to be helpful. That's why they got into this business. And they're kind of up a tree. They don't really know. And people are doing these seminars. And they're going, do this, do this, do this. And I always say to them, hey, think about the moment that you were working with a kiddo that you're not sure about. Was it fair for the kiddo? And they're like, was it fair for the kiddo? And I say to them, think about it again and think, how could you have made it fair for them? And I see their face go, oh, my gosh. Okay, I can work with that. Um, if that is not what your guiding purpose is, it's very easy to get off the beam. So say this to people. Say to them, I, you know, when you're working with an ABA provider, when you go in and you're having a meeting with them, say, it always needs to be fair for my child. That's the only way this is going to work is if it's fair for my child. And if they don't understand that, they are not the ABA provider for you or your kid. That's my position on that. Um, please feel free to disagree with me, but I, I know this isn't easy, but I know that it's worth it. I know that seeing your child succeed and have their self-esteem intact is worth it. And that I know because I've watched that. All right, my friends, uh, that's all the time we have. In fact, we've gone 11 minutes over, but it was worth it, right? Um, because this is how I want to be an ally. This is how I feel like as parents we can make a difference here and steer this ship in the right direction, which is that our, our children, our teens, our adults that are on the spectrum are, are people who are worthy of compassion who are worthy of being having support that teaches them with compassion. I, where I get into it is there are people who are like, why, why won't you just let them be as they are? I don't want to change who they are. But like anybody, I, I want people to grow. And, you know, if I look at any four-year-old, I don't ever go, well, why don't I just let them be exactly... They pick their nose. They pick their nose and they're pooping their pants and let's not send them to school. Because let's just pick them, let them pick their nose and poop their pants. That's not, that's not fair for them. They, they have the right to learn and grow. And, and that's why we send kids to school so that they can learn and, and find the thing that jazzes them to go on to lead the life that they want to lead, right? And we're not always going to get it right. But if we're thinking about it in terms of is it fair, uh, I think we will get it right. So if what the person wants to do is flap their hands, I'm not saying that hand flapping is wrong. There's nothing wrong with hand flapping. Nothing wrong with hand flapping. If that is the way you express happiness, that's wonderful. But should I say to you, okay, then you, you haven't shown an interest yet in, in writing because you've been busy flapping your hands, so I'm just not going to teach you handwriting? I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair to say that a four-year-old who has never had the opportunity to write um, should not get to learn that skill. That, to me, is not fair. So I believe in teaching children. I believe that it should be compassionate. We should be mindful of their sensory issues. 
We should be mindful of trauma that they may have experienced that we don't even know about and not make that worse. We should consider what is best for them. Um, and we should always ask, is what I'm teaching fair? Is it meaningful? Am I teaching it in a fair way? I think if we do that, we will always get it right, or at least 99.99% of the time right. That's my position. Okay, tomorrow, May, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Tomorrow, Dr. Grampichet is here, and you can talk with her about whatever you would like to talk with her about. You can send questions in now. You can email those to me. You can put the questions in um, the, the chat on Autism Hyphen Live. I don't remember what our starting topic is tomorrow, Traven. Do you have any idea that you could tell me? Because it has left my mind at the moment. Um, but we will take live questions. We now start with a topic and then uh, we move on into the questions that you guys send live. But we do take uh, questions that have been written in. Um, and Liliana, thank you. I want to know more about what you're doing, Liliana, um, and where you're doing it, because it sounds like you've got a beat on it. W were you able to figure out, Traven, what our topic is for tomorrow with Dr. Grampichet? Also want to... Oh, yes. Tomorrow we're starting with what is the difference between autism and intellectual disability? Now there's a hot topic for you, because they are not one and the same, my friends. Uh, I think we all know that, but how to explain that to teachers and other people that maybe don't know as much about autism because they're not living with an individual who's on the spectrum, we'll be talking with Dr. Grampichet about that. Then on Wednesday, we've got a great uh, author who's going to be talking with us about her memoir. About uh, She's an expert in teaching reading comprehension. Did I just catch your interest? Yes, I think it's a topic that we'd all like to know more. How do you effectively teach people on the spectrum uh, reading comprehension? Because we, we teach reading, but the comprehension part is sometimes that much harder. Then on Thursday, it's Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. And Nancy's going to be here with me. We've got some great guests who are going to be joining us. We're going to be talking about a wonderful arts program. Uh, we're also going to be talking about a program teaching play. How do you teach individuals on the spectrum to play? You know this is a subject that I like. Uh, I was going to write a book about it, but now I don't have to because this person is doing that. So, uh, yeah, Joe Harry, I'm speaking your language. Reading comprehension, that's on Wednesday. Um, and then on Friday, it will be Stories from the Spectrum, that program that is only the voices of individuals on the spectrum. We've got a great video this month from a wonderful artist talking about that eye contact thing and why forcing it is bad from an adult on the spectrum. He did this video, animated it himself. He's brilliant. What can I say? You're going to want to check that out. So all of that continuing on this week. And I think tomorrow, it's very likely tomorrow that we're going to have a big announcement about what we're going to be doing here in April that you're all going to want to <laughs>